So, good morning, Mr. Pearson. Dr. Pearson. Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> good morning, Don. Good to hear your voice. Um, so, this is this is pretty cool for me because uh, I think I mentioned this to you before. You are the first composer I've ever played. And that's probably <laughs> true for a, a, a lot of uh, former band students and, and current band students around the country. So, this is a, a really neat thing. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm bl- I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you were here right now, I'd have you sign my book. But <laughs> oh, fun. So Bruce, if you wouldn't mind, uh, usually how we start this off is we do a a timeline and a, a bio. If you wouldn't mind telling us about your musical upbringing, schools attended, and uh, maybe some mentors through your career. Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, first of all. Uh, I would, uh, as it relates specifically uh, to my upbringing, I grew up in Bloomington, Minnesota. I started, uh, I was involved in both uh, sports and in, of course, band. I started playing band in sixth grade, and I like to tell people I got involved in music because of a woman and drugs, and that is big, and that's because my mother drugged me into it. Um, we, <laughs> which is only partially true because uh, my mom encouraged me, but she didn't drag me. Uh, we had a really a great turnout. Uh, those in my class, I would say probably 60% of the kids who uh, were, uh, who started playing band or from that class started playing in band and, and most of them continued on through, uh, on through high school. So it was a, it was a wonderful, a wonderful experience. Um, when I went to college, uh, surprisingly, I didn't become in, uh, initially a music major. I was a I was a, a physical education major. As I went to St. Cloud State University initially to play hockey for them, which I did, and I played a couple of years uh, for them. Uh, and then, as they were recruiting kids who were bigger, faster, and stronger than me, I decided, what else can I do? And of course, during that whole time, I was playing. Um, my instruments, playing in the band, had the privilege of playing professionally for quite a few years. And uh, so I, I graduated from St. Cloud State University in St. Cloud State, and sorry, in St. Cloud, Minnesota, in uh, 1964 with a Bachelor of Science degree in music education. Then I went from there to the University of Northern uh, Colorado, where I received a master's degree in music education and uh, uh, in 1969, and I, I received a doctorate from St. Cloud State uh, University. I think it was in 2008. I think it was. Um, but anyway, that's that's kind of my schooling um, experience. Um, I've been thrilled uh, and uh, somewhat, uh, should we say, humbled when I uh, received um, first of all St. Cloud State. University's Distinguished Alumni Award, and then the University of Northern Colorado's equivalent, which they called their Honored Alumni Award. So, and then I started teaching, taught in a little town in northern Minnesota, um, population uh, 400, 
and that was during the tourist <laughs> season. It was much smaller during the during the winter months, and it was a great place to start because no one knew of all my mistakes. And so it was. I was there two years, uh, moved on to uh, Elk River, the town in which we currently live, taught there for 22 years. Then I taught at the University of Northwestern in St. Paul and then Bethel University, uh, which is a, a nearby school in St. Paul as well. So you've taught everything. Well, I uh, let, let's put it this way. At least I got a paycheck at every place. <laughs> <laughs> so, so could you tell me then, you know, between elementary, junior high, high school, college, and, you know, doing that for over 30 years, was there were, were there any similarities that you didn't expect? Uh, were there any differences? Uh, well, there are lots of similarities. Uh, kids are kids, and as long as you pre- uh, present to them a carefully planned lesson, including scope and sequence, um, their kids are going to achieve, obviously, at different skill levels. However, kids will continue to learn as long as you pre- present to them those carefully planned uh, lessons, and that which brings up another point that Don, maybe we're going to address a little later. I think that too often, band directors, uh, music teachers, but let's stay with band directors, too often expect too much too soon without laying the carefully planned uh, sequence of events to uh, to get them to to that point. As it relates to um, some of the differences. Um, when I was teaching at the elementary level um, and elementary and middle school level, um, I, was, I was a teacher. Um, whereas, as I, you know, we had developed some pretty nice bands in Elk River, and as I was a high school teacher, and when I became a college wind ensemble director, um, I found myself doing less teaching, more conducting, and always looking for the way to achieve the goal without uh, necessarily concern, or at least not as much concern, for the sequence to get them to that because they were at a certain skill level. I should back up and say, as it relates to some of my experiences, um, I taught uh, when I was in a little town in northern Minnesota. I was the entire music department which was, I love faculty meetings because I could just have a cup of coffee. <laughs> and, uh, and But and then I, uh, when I went to Elk River, I was initially uh, a high school teacher, taught there for 11 years, I guess it was, 10 or 11 years at the high school. Then I applied to medical school because I wanted to be a doctor and wanted to have an easier schedule. And, um, <laughs> and, then, and then the University of Minnesota Medical School convinced me I should probably go back to teaching, which was okay, and I had five good reasons to go back to teaching, and that was a wife, three kids, and a house payment. So then uh, from there, I went, um, I I taught, I was the elementary at the same school district. Uh, I was in charge of the elementary middle school music program as as well as being the supervisor of music. And then uh, when uh, that school district had a massive budget cut, they asked me if I would be so kind as to go back and teach at the high school level because I was the most experienced uh, teacher doing that. And um, again, um, while I've had a chance to teach at all of those levels, it seems to me that there's great similarity, providing you uh, give them a carefully thought out 
scope and sequence lesson as well as long and short uh, range planning. Great similarity, uh, but at the college level, you're preparing more for the next um, event, the next program, and your mind uh, shifts focus to getting those things ready. And that's true at the high school level too, getting ready for the next event, whatever it may be. And your your thought isn't so much on the scope and sequence teaching. So can we go back to something you said that, that's really interesting to me, too much too soon. Yes. What does that mean? It means this, is that, uh, for example, in order for the kids to have, let's take, let's take for example, sight reading. And, and we all know that sight reading is, in many ways, a, uh, uh, an experience in a new world war um, in the band room. And, um, but by, by that I mean, before we can present a piece of music for students to sight read and be successful with that, we must present the components necessary to be successful. So what does that mean? That means a, 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 uh, they have to have understanding of the keys. They have to be, have an understanding of the, um, uh, of the time signature, note values, et cetera, et cetera. But in addition to that, as we prepare kids to do that experience, have they been experiencing independent sight reading by having, and I use SATB chorales, soprano, alto, tenor, bass chorales, are the kids, when we play, everybody plays uh, the uh, melody soprano line, everybody plays the alto line, and then when we go to the uh, two-part, S-A, um, not only are we dividing the band by sections and maybe uh, geographical proximity, but also, too, are, is the person sitting next to you, to the child, playing something entirely different? Have we developed independent playing on a small level before we have gone through to the playing of a, a piece by the entire ensemble that uh, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a explanation of what i meant by sure too sure. fast too soon have we gone through those necessary steps because it's our job to ensure that kids are successful at every level that they play I think, you know, when you said the too fast, too soon, I ju I've just thought about some of the schools that I've taught in where the first day of school is August 17th, and then it's a tradition that we do a community performance on August 25th, for example. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, hello. <laughs> and, and that's just one of those things where it's like, you know, what do you what do? You do? And, and, and sure. you know, do you, do you still sight read? Do you still go through this? Or do you play 75% of what you played in the past and throw a couple new tunes there? You know, so, so that's where I was just kind of thinking. I'm like, is it, is it community, community expectations that's too fast, too soon? Um, is it band director expectations? Well, I think, I think, Don, in answer to that, I think the answer is yes to both of those. But one of the things, if you know that you've got a, a performance a week after school starts and you know that the previous year, boy, I'll tell you, I would sure be starting to prepare that song, whatever, or songs, plural, uh, the previous year so that, uh, so that we don't have to beat up the kids in order to be successful. So, great. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about maybe some mentors that you have had in um, the music field, educational field, both, and, and maybe even business-wise, and we'll, we'll segue into the method book after that. Sure, sure. Um, 
uh, I have not uh, had a lot of uh, personal uh, study in composition. A lot of it's been uh, trial and error. But I did have the opportunity when I was uh, a, a student teacher that my supervising teacher was John Zedeklik, the composer of his well-known piece, Chorale and Shaker Dance. And I consider John not only to be a mentor, but a friend. Um, when I was doing doctoral studies at the University of Minnesota, uh, Dr. Frank Ben Crusciuto was a, uh, a compositional uh, mentor. And then, um, as I've, and then when it comes to uh, teaching, um, I tend to be um, a let's let's say a student of learning theories, and so therefore I, I read a lot um, as it relates to learning theories. Then I think maybe if anyone says you know I've made a contribution, it would be that I take those learning theories and put them into meaningful classroom activities, and thus the uh, formation of method books. So, uh, and I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here. Sorry, but could you no, no problem? Could you talk to us a little bit about maybe some of those those learning theories for anybody that's listening to this that wants to maybe look up either sure. in detail or maybe they just want to get the Wikipedia version of it? <laughs> Here's the Wikipedia version, Cliff Note version. It has to do uh, two things come to mind, um, and one has to do with uh, let's call them rhythm sets. And it has to do with the, uh, have more to do, we'll say, with um, the, what I've lovingly referred to as the sound before symbol approach to uh, music uh, rhythmic reading. And, and, well, it also goes into pitch sets, too. But, uh, for example, uh, when you present something that, uh, it, it, you know, you, it, there's a three-step process. First of all, it's you hear it before you see it. Then you see what you just performed, so it starts like rote, but here's where it deviates from rote teaching because then you apply what you've learned without any modeling. The major difference between sound before symbol and um, uh, rote teaching is that rote teaching tends to model everything. Therefore, if you don't model it, we hear the uh, the band uh, students battle cry, how does it go? <laughs> and and um, so consequently, uh, when I write, uh, for example, method books, uh, they I instruct the students. In fact, I do a lot of these in services and uh, demonstrate that, first of all, we play something. For example, the introduction of quarter notes. We play it. Then we come back and say, here's what you just played. Now, here's that in a new environment, a new context, and that's that exactly that same rhythm, but using known pitches and known fingerings. Now, the same thing relates to, uh, to, to learning theories as it relates to pitch sets. There's two components. One is, obviously, you sing it, and, and therefore you know what it sounds like before you even play it. And it might be do re mi, it might be uh, do so mi, uh, and uh, all of those kind of uh, intervals. But you, then you also learn it on your instrument, and that's where you're developing your ear, and that's where all these dictational skills or 
uh, in the bands I've directed, we always have what we call solo soli, where a person plays a one measure, um, a little, I'll call it a melody, uh, with a measure rest, and then the entire band would copy that. I would tell them their starting note and uh, giving a concert pitch, and then the kids would play it back. So we're developing rhythmic um, independence and rhythm sets. We're developing pitch independence and pitch sets. Those are just two examples, but they have broad, broad application. I see. Yeah, and that's a very, very interesting way to to approach that because, again, I, I think about starting some kids, and it's it's always where, you know, I, I guess I'm, what I'm really taking from talking to you so far still is the too much too soon and you know i'm I'm thinking about starting off even private trumpet students and we you know you need to hold the instrument correctly you need to make the sound i'm going to show you how to do it you know you have to read the music right now and what you're saying is "Eh, slow down yeah (laughs) slow down and there's a little self-discovery is okay here as well and since you i believe i didn't i maybe didn't catch it but did you say trumpet yeah uh, yeah, so for example, let's let's kind of talk and then let's camp on that. Just and let me unpack that a bit. Sure. Okay, so at the very first lesson of trumpet, I'll teach them how to, uh, obviously, how the posture, the importance of air, both inhale and exhale. I'm teaching that, and exhale is way different than blowing. And, and then I'll teach them what the embouchure, uh, how we shape the embouchure, and then I will ha- have them encircle the and then create a buzz and then encircle the buzz with the uh with their mouthpiece now they still haven't picked up their horn yet and then i'll have them create a siren and then what i'll have them do is maybe play on their mouthpiece uh line number one without them being aware of it's a line number one um, by me playing an example, because it's important for me to model that. Yeah. So I'll say, well, here, here's here's uh, four notes, for example. Play it on your mouthpiece, because we all know that the instrument is really nothing more than an amplifier of what happens on the embouchure. And that, um, yeah, I, I, like I said, I look back at my, my own trumpet students, and I, I think I need to maybe change to that pro- approach a little bit more rather than, you know, here's that first lesson, and let's just cram in as much as possible. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, I was, you know, Don, and I was guilty, too. These are things that I've learned over the years. And, you know, and I was no different than, you know, folks, here's an E. Uh, it gets four beats. You play E, press down the first and second valve. Uh, here we go, one, two, ready, play. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I, I need to go back and apologize to all of those students who I, <laughs> who, I who couldn't do it. I say, why can't you do it, you know? So let's, let's switch gears then, and um, let's talk about the method book or the method books. Sure. And um, maybe, you know, what the inception of Standards of Excellence um, was. How did that come about? Okay. Well, first of all, I have to back up. You may or may not be aware I've, I've been involved in three method books. The first, the first series was called Best in Class, um, and I wrote that, I think, when I was oh, in my mid-30s. And um, it was shortly after I had, remember I said I was a band director, and then I became an elementary middle school band director, and I was using you know, all of the standard method books that people were using, and they just didn't seem to make uh, sense to me not only scope and sequence, but what they did to, for example, 
the percussion they would uh, for example um play a um you know a a whole note well snare drums have a very difficult time playing whole notes um uh, unless you teach them how to do a roll well obviously you don't want to start with a roll so what i what i did is in writing best in class was purely a, a desire to address the unique problems of each and every instrument within the context of a single method book. And that came to print in 1982. And, um, and between 1982 and the time I wrote um, Standard of Excellence was what happened, I was this music supervisor, and one of my responsibilities was to, um, was to help my choral and string friends develop a curriculum for their specific area. And I was seeing all the wonderful things that they were doing um, as it related to uh, multicultural, it's the word intercultural, non-denominational, um, and all of those kinds of things, multicultural and uh, interdisciplinary. Those are the words I'm looking for, sorry. Uh, multicultural, interdisciplinary, Plus, all this was the time. Keep in mind when the our our um, music education was also looking at what was called the national standards, which came to print in 1994, and uh, that's when the draft standards came out. So, in writing standard of excellence, I wanted to do an, what I consider to be an even better job um, on individual instrument skills. Uh, the national standards, and also um, I wanted to slow the series down because when I wrote Best in Class, I was an unpublished author-composer, and I was told that we, there would only be two levels to the series. So it was a, to Best in Class, there was only a book one and a book two. Now, because that had done well and when I was with the same publisher, I told them we needed to have a book three to slow book uh, one and as to slow book two down in, in particular, and so that's we did that. And of course, if you look at Standard Beckson's book three, there's heavy emphasis on on uh, history, music uh, history, and examples uh, of it throughout. So consequently, I was addressing those national standards. Now, and then, uh, and also too, we were addressing the business of some technology. Uh, at that time, and we were adding it as we were going along, thus uh, the inclusion of iPass and smart music and all those kind of things. And then along came uh, around, uh, oh goodness, it's, I'm going to try to date myself. It was probably about 2006, 2007, and uh, Standard of Excellence had been out now for about 10, 12 years. And uh, I, I was continuing to learn new things, and uh, technology, of course, was um, exploding. And so in 2011, Ryan Nowlin and I uh, wrote, uh, and it came to print in 2011, um, Tradition of Excellence, which I would say is a refinement on some of the, uh, the former things I introduced in Standard of Excellence, and 
the inclusion of a tremendous amount of technology. What was um, some of the technology examples? I know you mentioned smart music. iPads. You mentioned yeah. iPads. Yeah, yeah. And so what we have now, as we uh, we developed a tradition of excellence, and then on on tradition of excellence, you have things such as the inclusion uh, of a tuner, the business of allowing one to be able to to um, record their performance and put it in a portfolio and send it uh, to their teacher. Um, uh, we have, yeah, tuner, metronome. We have videos. In Tradition of Excellence, we have 201 videos be- uh, in Level 1 because teachers are having uh, less and less time uh, to give individual um, instruction. So consequently, we just kept uh, adding all of those uh, things, plus uh, the business of uh, being able to have, right within a book, ear training studies and um, theory and history lessons, uh, test reflection forms, uh, also... Um, improvisation, to name a few. Your first book, Best in Class, comes out. Was this like a pretty instant hit? Yeah, it did. It did. Uh, it did well. And one of the reasons for that is I I took a year off of of uh, teaching a sabbatical and really spent a lot of time demonstrating it. So I would say we were very very pleased with its response. Uh, right off the bat. And I, I find that fascinating and, and pretty impressive, too, because I think some people don't realize how many method books were out there. And where where I teach, um, we've, we've got a pretty historical program, mm-hmm. and they've kept most of the music. And we, we have examples of most mm-hmm. of the band mm-hmm. method books that were written. And it, it's, it seems like yeah. everybody yeah. wrote a method book. <laughs> And you know one of the one of the significant differences, and I think it's still true today, is that the very few um, method book writers uh, were ever teachers. Um, many many of them gained their fame as composers, and they gained their in, uh, names were prominent as composers. But then, when they when it comes to writing method books, that's a whole new animal. Um, I, I guess for for me, you know, I I would wonder like, is there is there anything that goes into the process of of writing and publishing this method book that sure, that might be sure. surprising? You to know, music I think teachers? that all of us wish we could have a seventy eight page book uh, and that covers everything for. Uh, every instrument and cost nine dollars and ninety five cents um, and but that 's not going to happen sure. when when we originally uh, uh, did tradition of excellence or when we were in the planning stages, there were a lot of things that I wanted to include uh, technologically, but it would have boosted the price to well over uh, twenty dollars a book, and so we had to scale some things back and leave some things off the table. Um, but, however, um, uh, that having been said, little did I know when I started this whole business of writing uh, method uh, books that in order for a page to be attractive, you can only have uh, eight lines of music on a page. 
Little did I know hmm. that in general you can only have 30 note heads per line, and um, and they can't be whole notes. Um, so you're dealing with that. And then little did I know that initially uh, you could only have 32 pages. So that puts a tremendous amount of limitations. When I wrote best in class, if I needed to have more note heads, I just wrote smaller because everything was done on a number two lead pencil. And uh, and so I I just had everything wrote I wrote smaller and you know to make it fit. Well, then when the editors got they said, well, no, you can't do that. So there's there's a whole bunch of things. Little did I know, for example, that uh, when we did standard of excellence. uh, the publisher allowed me to have a 48-page book, which allowed me to, you know, to slow the the uh, sequencing down. And in many ways, in many cases, I didn't necessarily uh, increase the scope, but I was able to put more reinforcement in, and thus making it a smoother page turner. So, and I know you co-authored. Uh, tradition and excellence, as you mentioned, and I know you also co- co-authored a yeah. um, a jazz book as well, Dean Sorensen, correct? So, yeah. what is that process? What's the what's the collaboration process sure. look like for a method book? Well, let's start let's start with first of all the uh, jazz ensemble method. Uh, Dean and I are dear friends, and in fact, we get together and have coffee weekly, and we're still you know really really close friends. And um, so um, here's here's kind of how that went. Uh, while I had jazz experience as a player, it had been many, many years ago, where Dean is even currently just still a fine, fine player. And um, also, I did high school jazz ensembles that were, I think, you know, successful. And uh, Dean had not had that experience, but he was a wonderful composer, far better jazz composer than I am. And so what would happen is that you know, I think it was really a good collaboration um, between uh, the two of us. And Fred Sturm, um, who was one of the great pedagogues and a friend of Dean's, in the foreword kind of wrote the uh, comment when he said, you know, it was a great marriage between Dee and me in that he was a, uh, he's a consummate a jazz composer, and I was the pedagogue, and I think that that's uh, a fair statement. So what, how that would work, we sat down and we said, okay, we're, we want three styles. We're going to have a rock swing and Latin, and so we had some discussion right from the get-go. Uh, what comes first, rock, swing, or Latin? And what we decided was rock because that's closest to a march, and the kids have had some experience, and they could be most successful. Again, it comes down to big-picture sequencing. And um, so we started with rock, and we you know, said, uh, okay, what are the most basic um, rhythms that they would experience? And within uh, five tunes, what would be the five, what would be the sequence of uh, rhythms, for example, and keys, uh, including modes, and then Dean would write the charts for that. So that's kind of the, how that process worked. Um, starting in when I met uh, Ryan, um, and I had been on a search to find uh, just really an, uh, a, a wonderful uh, colleague, and, and Ryan is just the consummate uh, 
colleague. You may or may not know he's with the Marine Band now, hmm. and um, he's the associate conductor of the president's own Marine Band. But when I met him, he was a high school and middle school band director in a suburb of Cleveland. We got together, and um, he had been using Standard of Excellence, so he was well familiar with my philosophy of things. And so we decided uh, to uh, to write this together. And he was more than just a, uh, a, a observer. I mean, he was actively involved in, in, in challenging me. Bruce, why did you do this? And so uh, I think as a result of that, uh, it's a far better book with his involvement than if I had attempted to do a third book on my own. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like it was a great, you know, collaboration and relationship there. And, 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 you know, as you described it, here's here's what you brought to the table. Here's what he brings to the table. And, you know, we're going to we're going to make a great method book out of that. So so let's just talk like personal and, and emotional here. How how does it make you feel? You know, as as I open this up, you're you're the first composer I played, my bandmates played. You know, uh, how does that still speak to you having been involved with the method book process for, you know, 30 plus years? Right. Um let me just uh, mention this that um hopefully I haven't changed and nothing has changed. Um I'm I'm kind of a hopeless romantic <laughs> and uh, and every time I see a new something new that I've been involved in come across my desk, there's kind of a moment of silence and kind of reflection. And as I go through that, um, I I can recount, uh, you know, what was involved in writing that piece. Not only not only in writing it, but what does what does it teach, and does it have an emotional uh, impact. And so consequently, that uh, that still is very, very meaningful. Um, I returned uh, just Saturday from um, doing teaching at the Arkansas Bandmasters Association Conference. And when, when people come up to me and thank me for my work and how it's helped their kids, and they can in some cases relate a personal story, um, I... I, I tear up oftentimes as a result of that. So it's it's very very touching, very very meaningful, and still is. And when it is no longer that, I think that's the time for me to pack up and do something else. <laughs> go play hockey. Oh, you go play hockey or go be a doctor. <laughs> so so let's talk about other experiences then, because you've had a, a career that you've been to all fifty states. You've been uh, to to many different countries. What are some other special or highlighted experiences that you've uh, you can think of that you've had from any area, school, musicians, or, or an event? Well, you know, I, I think of some everything from uh, small schools where you can make a difference. I remember in being in a school in in Cedar Creek, uh, Texas, uh, a small school. Uh, it just happened to be a school where my son is a fifth grade teacher. And uh, he he talked to the band director, and I was down there for the Texas Bandmasters, and uh, or yeah, I think that's what it was. Uh, no, it must have been uh, Texas Music Educators Association. And um, he asked me to come in and take and do a rehearsal, and and I did a rehearsal, and I I'm to this moment I can see and feel the vibes that went as a result of those kids 
being able to play expressively um, and 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 enjoying that experience. So there's some of those small experiences I've been to all over. Um, I mean, uh, this because of my music and music education. Um, in on September 5th, I'm going to be teaching in China, and um, and because the method books are translated into Chinese, uh, in the end of September, uh, I'm going to be uh, uh, conducting in Israel, and uh, and I've got some lifelong friends in Australia. Um, I've also had the opportunity of conducting the United States Navy Band in. Uh, Washington D.C. at a concert, um, and it's always a, a thrill to, uh, to me. Uh, for the, uh, uh, for example, um, uh, my wife and I live in in uh, Arizona in the winter time. Being from Minnesota, you understand. Uh, me being from Minnesota, you understand <laughs> that. <laughs> and uh, the wonderful clarinet teacher uh, Robert Spring is at Arizona State, and for him to say, you know, that was the book. Uh, that was the book that I learned how to play out of. I mean, that gives me uh, just a tremendous amount of satisfaction. Well, we are all getting back to school soon. Yes. And uh, by the time this episode airs, um, it'll probably air in about two or three weeks from sure. our, our recording now. But I think all of us will be in the thick of it. So what uh, what, what advice or what encouragement would you like to give to um, you know new returning veteran teachers? Sure. I, I think that a couple things. Um, I think that, first of all, I think as um, just remember that every child is the apple of some parent's eye. And uh, and keep that to be ever forefront that even though they can be challenging, um, I think it's important uh, that we keep that in perspective. Um, I think it's important... Um, that we as teachers, um, band directors, are guilty of two flaws in our repertoire selection, uh, and that both of those flaws have a tendency to sabotage our efforts to grow our programs. First, I think we choose music based on what we think will entertain our students rather than touching their souls. And secondly, we choose repertoire that is just too difficult, um, the rationalizing that a harder piece will create a more spectacular and thus more positive outcome. Hmm. And let's face it, it tends to stroke our egos. Um, <laughs> and the truth is, however, that all students really want to sound great, and creating beautiful sounds is fun and motivating. Students know when they don't sound good, and that's not fun. It's a frustrating and a turnoff. And then I think the other point, uh, and we've kind of uh, repeated it a couple times, the challenge of not going too fast too soon. And then uh, if we want our programs to, to grow, there's uh, really no substitute for, for developing a culture of excellence. And uh, so those would be my in words of encouragement, and to do that with enthusiasm, and that'd be my encouragement uh, to teachers. This may be their 27th year of teaching, 
but it's those students' first year in band. Well, that is great advice, and I appreciate that, and I know everyone else will. So my last question is the softball one. It's a personal question. I haven't watched hockey since uh, Chris Chelios played for the Blackhawks. Oh, my goodness. You... It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you still a big hockey fan? Oh, of course I am. I've got a grandson who plays it, too, so I, 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 can't, I, I have to make sure I see his games. Okay, so who's who? I, I want to start getting into hockey again. What do I? What do I do? I, we've got the Blackhawks out here in Chicago. Is that who well, I stick with? Yeah, I would stick with them, but they're arch enemies of the Minnesota Wild, so I can't give you any help with that team. This is where you just hang up the phone at me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Bruce, thank you very much for for speaking with me today, and uh, I, I appreciate everything you've done for music uh, education and everything that you're still. Uh, doing, of course. Well, thank you for the opportunity, and thanks for uh, your work with the podcast and uh, how that can encourage and and uh, enrich teachers and consequently then their students. Thank you very much. Take care now. <laughs> <laughs>